friends, brothers and sisters, because the preaching of the word is a communal affair, that we all need the spirit to hear and respond, and we do that together. I pray the Lord be with you. God, open our ears and hearts to your good news today. Leave no stone unturned seeking us out and finding us, we pray. Amen. Friends, our series is going through the book of, uh, well, going through creation. So we're using lots of different texts to talk about creation because uh, creation isn't relegated to the first two chapters of Genesis. It shows up all over the place. And if we wanted to do this series justice, we'd go on for about three or four years, which probably don't have the attention span for that. I don't think I have that. So we're working our way through this, and today we're to the image of God. Today we're going to answer the questions, um, who has the image of God, and what is the image of God? And it comes from this text here in Genesis chapter 1. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness, and let them have dominion. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. Friends, today we proclaim the good news. That God isn't merely tolerating you. Amen? He's not angered and annoyed by your foibles and failures. He's created you, as Psalm 8 said, to be a little lower than the angels. You're made for majesty. An icon of eternity. The crown jewel of a glorious masterpiece. Creation wasn't very good until you got there. And Jesus comes to restore and renew this image, friends. He's not only a picture of who God is. I think most Christians have that down. He's also a picture of who we are. He's the paragon of personhood, a prototype for humanity. The good news today is that we are saved by Christ's authority to bear Christ's authority. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. God trusts you. Your vocation is sacred. So let's consecrate our lives this day. I was at a a bar. At a bar. I was at a bar. I was at a bar. Speaking of holy, I was at a bar a few months ago telling, uh, and and we're, we're doing an Enneagram retreat in about a month and a half, um, and someone had just gotten back, I was with a group of pastors, someone had just gotten back from an Enneagram conference, and he was talking about how he had just discovered the Enneagram. If you know what the Enneagram is, it's fine. But he's talking about, he had, it, is, it really is fine. God, it's great. Um, <clears throat> come to the retreat. Um, he was talking about how he had found the Enneagram, and it was really helpful for him. And uh, I started sharing my story, because we were just kind of sharing stories, and um, I had spent uh, many years with the Enneagram and, and couldn't figure out kind of where I sat on it. And I was in an office with Ben and Deb, and Deb read a story about one of the authors of this book we were reading, found out he was an a Enneagram 4. It doesn't really matter, but his, 
his moment of sort of lucidity and clarity about who he was and, and how um, the wrong in him matched up with this sort of profile was uh, he was in the rain, in the darkness, in the middle of the night, walking down the street. I mean, this is very like John Cusack, right? Um, like very dramatic and like, you know, melodramatic. And he's standing there and he looks up at the sky and he, and he shouts, there's not a damn thing wrong with me. Now, for him, that was like this breakthrough moment of, uh, of coming out from under like mountains of shame, mountains of um, feeling just awful. And he realized that he was the same as everybody else. Somebody was sitting there across the table and I told this story and I said, that's how I found out who I was. Uh, ben and Deb can attest to this. When I heard that, I crawled under the table, which is also pretty melodramatic. Uh, so, so there's a connection there. Yeah, that's it. I, I crawled on the table because I felt like uh, I, I could totally relate. And I'm sharing this with my friend Casey, and this guy across the table says, yes, but that's a prison in hell, right? What do you mean? He goes, well, I mean, if you really believe that, then you don't need grace. I was like, no. No, I'm just, I'm just sharing my story about this transformational thing that happened to me, right? And ensued a 30-minute conversation where this person uh, tried to convince me that unless I understood myself as there's every damn thing wrong with me. I couldn't be saved. Does that narrative sound familiar to anybody? Um, one of our most famous hymns that we sing in the church, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. Now, John Newton, the guy who wrote that story, he was really bad. He was, not, he was, a, he was a bad hombre, as they say. Um, here's, a, here's his own quote about, um, about him. Listen to this. How industrious is Satan served? I was formerly one of his active under-tempters. And had my influence been equal to my wishes, I would have carried all the human race with me. A common drunkard or pr profligate is a petty sinner to what I was. He was a slave trader. He was, known as, he was known as inventing vulgar words to scandalize his Catholic and Anglican shipmates in the 18th century. I mean, he was a ruffian and a brigand, a bandit, somebody who trafficked in things, right? But this, this, this realization that he had that I, I'm a, this is a wretchful way of living was a healthy decision. But uh, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I think that uh, the... the, the the spirituality and the theology that I inherited about what it means to identify myself as a human has been populated with words like totally depraved, worthless, a worm, dung, a wretch. Can anyone relate to this? It's faithful, it's faithful 
to consider myself worthless. Is this just me? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? We're going to get to what happens in Genesis 3. So you've got to come back. <laughs> there's, some, there's some stuff that happens in the human story that's tragic, that leads to awful consequences, that makes us do things like buy and sell human beings, abuse, exploitation, totally depraved stuff. But friends, our story doesn't begin there. God isn't barely tolerating your, you as a wretch. He's not angered and annoyed by your foibles and failures. He's created you to be a little lower than the angels. You're made for majesty. You're an icon of eternity. You're the crown jewel of his masterpiece. This entire project wasn't very good until you got here. And Jesus comes to restore the dignity and worth of humanity. He's not just a picture of who God is, but he is the prototype of humanity. So the good news we proclaim today is that you're not just saved by Christ's authority, you're saved to bear Christ's authority in the world as his image bearer. So, God trusts you. Your vocation, your work is sacred. Let's consecrate our lives today. Two questions about this image of God. Who has it and what is it? We see from Genesis chapter 1 that male and female are created in the image of God. Friends, it's hard to exaggerate, even for me, and I'm pretty good at it, how how radical, how radical this is. You see, in the ancient Near East, when this story was written, um, images were common. Images of God were common. They had another name. They were called king. Most ancient cultures believed that the king who was leading their people was an image of God. And so the king would set up little visages, little icons of his person in various places around where he, lit, where he ruled as representations of his authority. Now in some cultures like Babylon, Egypt, the king wasn't just an image of God. What happened? The king was God. The king was a God. This is why um, the pyramids, you can think of the three pyramids, uh, in Egypt, and you know there's a sphinx there? That sphinx is like the cherubim guarding the gods, because the gods are buried there, right? So, so think about it this way. So, uh, so then, understanding that the image of God exists in the king, or the king himself is God, he's a picture of the God, along comes Genesis chapter 1. That says humanity has God's image. And notice how the author does this. God said, let us make humankind, Adam, in our image, according to our likeness. And let them have dominion. This is all kingly stuff, right? So God created Adam in his image. In the image of God, he created 
Kim, it's a pronoun referring to Adam. Male and female, he created them. This whole thing builds to this huge surprise that it's not just a king, but it's Adam and females. There's this democratization of the image of God from the solitary person to the community. God rules through you and I. This is how he created things. This is one of the reasons why God gets so cranked up at Israel when they're like, we want a king. Remember this? It's in like 1 Samuel. God gets cranked up about that. Not just because God's already their king, but because God's already said, y'all are kings and queens. So they're forgetting who they are and forgetting who God is when they ask for a king. So friends, who is the image of God? Well, it's you and me. He's made us a little lower than the angels. This word angels means heavenly being or assembly. Sometimes it means God. It's Elohim. Sometimes it's just another word for Yahweh. We're crowned with glory and honor. Why is this important? Because historically Christians have not affirmed this. Historically, we've done a pretty bad job of honoring the dignity and worth of every human being because they're made to bear God's authority in the world. John Newton himself was a slave trader. Right? The concept of race was invented by slave traders. Do you know that? Portuguese sailors in the 16th century had to figure out a way to justify the fact that they were making loads of gold off of selling Africans to places like Europe. And so the modern concept of race was invented to justify the dehumanizing of somebody made in the image of God. So historically, not all humans have been icons. And, you know, I mean, white people, we've had a good run of uh, wretchedness. <laughs> but we're, it's not just us, right? Like, humanity is, excels at dishonoring and dehumanizing others. Also, friends, the church hasn't done a very good job with honoring the dignity and worth of women. We, we don't have... It's just until recently, like, what I mean by recently, in the last century that Christians didn't regularly argue for the ontological inferiority of females. This is in the last hundred years. Some Christians still argue for this, that, that men are in the image of God, and Paul talks about this, and we don't have time to go into it, but women are created in man's image. This is when Paul's talking about head coverings in 1 Corinthians. It's a little complicated don't worry about it. But, don't worry about it. We don't have time to go there. Uh, but my point is, friends, as a church, this is, this is good news inherent in the creation that we have done a poor job stewarding, and we need to be clear on this. Every single person in the world is created in God's image. Male, female, Black, white. 
Barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, Jew, Gentile, gay, straight, every single one. Image of God. An icon of eternity, made for majesty. Creation isn't very good until they are here. We need them. Because Christ comes to reveal, restore, and redeem the image in them. So that he can, by his authority, save them so they can bear his authority for him. It's the good news today, friends. Each of you. Each of you. Your very goodness runs deeper than your very badness. Your very goodness began before any wrongness that lives in you. Number two, What is this image? I've already referred to it a few times. But how do we image God? Well, we're told to be fruitful and multiply. But also, uh, birds and trees did that too. Right? They're doing a pretty good job of it. Sydney, if you want to hear more about that, ask your dad about the birds and the bees. It's all all about that. (laughs) So creation is fruitfuling and multiplying. Yeah? But the thing that's particular about humans is this command we see, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Now let me just say this. We also haven't done a very good job of doing this either. Uh, The words subdue and have dominion, which is where we get the word dominate, can have pejorative meanings. Right? Oftentimes, Uh, this text is used as a justification for the way that, and a rationalization for the way that we exploit, the way that we use creation. And when it's combined with this sort of, this is why we're doing creation, new creation, friends, when this sort of way of understanding this, God's given us all this stuff to just use. And it's okay if it's, it's okay if the water's polluted. It's okay if you can't live in Mexico City for more than 10 years without getting lung cancer. That's okay because you know what? I know the end of the story it's all going to burn up anyway. So I can treat creation as my own personal garbage dump because God's promised me that this whole thing's going to blow up. Anybody heard this before? This is, I mean, it's not maybe said as baldly as that, but that's basically what it means. First of all, it's not true. And we'll get to new creation. In fact, we don't see the world blowing up like at the, you know, we don't see like the Death Star shooting Alderaan and it exploding at the end of Revelation. But what we see is heaven coming down to earth. We got some cleaning up to do if that's going to happen. But the reason why these words exist here, friends, just transplant yourself 3,000 years ago. I mean, right now we have a nice 72 degrees, no humidity in here. I'm drinking coffee. No wild animals in this room. No one has the plague, right? There's no, nobody has leprosy or a broken bone that we have to amputate because we can't set bones. Nature is scary. I went uh, a year ago, I went on a, a Yellowstone backpacking uh, trip with some buddies of mine. And thanks to REI, I was completely ready. Uh, 
uh, I, I got all this gear, all this bag, great shoes, great like really high-tech socks, keep my feet dry. We had to go to the ranger station to get these bear canisters, which are these big black like uh, plastic tubes that you screw down. And you have to put the bear canisters 100 feet over here, and you have to put your tent 100 feet over here, and you put your latrine, so you can ask your dad what that is too, over here. And then we had to cook another 100 feet over here. And like, you know, bug spray and flashlights and protein bars and goose sticks and you know what I'm saying? Like, we did the wilderness about as good as a 21st century person can do the wilderness. But I was reminded again, nature don't care about me. In fact, when I go out in the middle of nature, I am like, I'm just like food. I'm carbohydrates for every other thing that lives. Bacteria, viruses, animals, fungus, you name it. Mosquitoes, I'm like one big juicy tomato. Nature's scary. And so the people who hear this, the people who are funding this imagination, like they really do have to subdue the earth. They really do have to like make things happen. Like they, you know what I'm saying? They don't just roll up to fresh time and buy their organic strawberries. That's what I'm saying. So nature is scary. But we are subduing and having dominion as God's image bearers. So that means we bear our authority, not like a tyrant, but like Christ. Right? So we subdue and have dominion the way that Christ does. Right? You've heard the Gentiles say, this is what Mallory read. This is how you, this is how you bear authority. You lord it over people and make them do what you want, but not so among you. This is what my authority looks like. And you notice in Luke 22, he says, because I'm conferring on you a kingdom. I got to get you ready. You got to know how to have authority and lead because that's where this whole thing is going. Yeah? First, 2 Corinthians 3, not 1 Corinthians. Uh, my bad. 2 Corinthians 3 talks about how when we look at Christ, we're being renewed into his image. Why? Because he's the image of God. Meaning he shows us who God is like and he shows us who we are. So there's two main ways I, I want to say, just say that we see God bearing his authority here. One is ordering and arranging in Genesis 1. And the other is creating and animating. So in my family, Deacon and Sharon are the ordering and arranging. This morning, this morning, Deacon has this, he's got a big silver briefcase in his room and he keeps the key somewhere we don't know. And once in a while, he opens it up and lets us look at what's in there and he, he, but, but like he's present. He brings things out one at a time. We can look at them. And then he puts them back in their place right where they belong. So, to, so today, I'm telling you, today uh, he had all his eraser collection laid out. And we were playing with them one at a time. And they were, all in their, they were all ordered up. I mean, he, the kid, just orders and arranges everything. Everything. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm talking about, Dylan? Uh, Cece and I are a little different. We're, we're kind of the, we're the, we're the creative animation inside the ordering and creating. So Cece changed outfits four times today and didn't like plan it. She just got the idea, took her outfit off right where she was, ran to her room and put a new one on. Right? <laughs> like you go into my office and there's like chaos and it, it's right next to Deacon's room. And I just want to say, like, maybe you, maybe you understand yourself more as an order arranger 
Maybe you understand yourself as a creator animator. But there's one that's not right or wrong. They go together. We need both. Because without order and shape, creative and animation is chaos. Without a cell wall, all the stuff in the cell that's creating and animating has no function, no form. Right? But if you just have a cell wall, there's, dead, there's nothing inside that will keep it alive. So we bear Christ's authority in our places, our vocations. Some of us look more like the ordering and shaping, and some of us more look like the filling and the creating and the animating. Friends, what is the work God has given you to do? Maybe that schema helps you. Maybe you can just think about your primary places of responsibility. I mean, I'm a pastor and a dad and a husband. Those are my main areas of responsibility. What are your main areas of responsibility? How today is it good news that God isn't barely tolerating you there? He's not looking at your foibles and failures and just like exasperated and angry with you there. But he's created you to bear his authority right there. And that the glory and the majesty of that authority is just a little below the angels. That you're an icon of eternity right there as a mom. You're made for majesty. You're made to demonstrate the glory and the splendor and the love of Jesus right there. That wherever you are wouldn't be very good if you weren't there. You bring the very goodness into the created order where God has placed you. Today, friends, the good news. The good news is that Christ, as we gaze at Christ, He is reclaiming and redeeming His image in you. Not so you can just uh, fly away someday. Not so you can just look back at when you were a wretch and sing Amazing Grace and be thankful for that. Go ahead and do that. But friends, He's got so much more in mind. He's conferring on us a kingdom. We are a kingdom of priests This is the mystery hidden for ages that's being revealed, that Christ wants to demonstrate his wisdom through the church. It's Ephesians 3. So today, friends, God trusts you. Your vocation is sacred. Let's consecrate it today. Yeah? So let's pray together this prayer. Let's respond as image bearers, With this prayer, this prayer of consecration, Father God, I thank you that in Christ we can say with no qualification that your creation is very good. No qualification. <laughs> no, we just, we just declare it, right? Help me to live into your image and likeness in my blank. May I see my vocation as royal and holy. So we're affirming the very goodness of creation, and we're consecrating 
our responsibility in it, okay? And then we'll say, Lord, in your mercy, and we'll all reply, hear our prayer. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that in Christ Jesus, we can say with no qualification that your creation is very good. Help me to live into your image and likeness in my job as a coach and a pastor. May I see my vocation as royal and holy. Lord, in your mercy.